HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation... So, yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider. And I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I celebrate the challenges and accomplishments of extraordinary individuals and highlight the work of incredible women. So it may surprise some of my regular listeners that today's guest is indeed not at all a woman. Instead, it is a bearded, barrel-chested, maniacally focused chef who each day pays homage to the women he's learned from. My guest today is Evan Funky, the founder of Felix Trattoria in Venice Beach, California. He's just published a cookbook called American Sfalino, which translates into American Pasta Maker. So you've been on a journey of mastery and perfection. I'm I'm a, the perpetual student. I I don't I would never consider myself a master. Well, that's why it's still a journey. Yes. <laughs> so what was in the water? Like, what did your father, as a as a DP and a master, hmm. how did he cultivate that quest inside you? <laughs> well, first of all, he he was very rarely around. So I was raised by my my oldest brothers and and my mom. And um, uh, he really led by example. He, the proof was in the pudding. He really set the bar by setting the example for all of us. Like, this is how you work hard. 
the first 18 months of opening Felix, I only took 12 days off. When did you first find your love of pasta? Well, it, I think my love of pasta actually began when I was a child. My mom was raised by proxy by four Italian families in Little Italy in San Francisco. And one of my very earliest culinary memories is walking into um, an apartment owned by a woman named JJ. She was from Bologna and her husband was from Genoa. <clears throat> and um, I could still smell the ragu bolognese on the stove, the cigarette smoke, and the pesto genovese that she was making by hand. And walking up the carpeted steps and feeling this sense of just magic in the air, it was like tangible. You could smell it, you could cut it with a knife, and it's so clear in my head. So that was one of kind of the foundational memories that drove me to eat and drove me to find something. Because I did a lot of things before I found my life as a chef. I was a massage therapist for two years professionally, shiatsu, and Swedish, and, uh, and uh, sports massage. Wait, there has to be a connection here. I 100%. Mean, you're rolling out the dough. You're 100%. Like rolling so. out the humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I never really got any joy out of it. It was just, you know, I needed to express myself physically because through hard work, I had to have an outlet. So it seemed like a good idea, but in the end, it really wasn't for me. <clears throat> I also played drums for 10 years, so that led to an enormous amount of dexterity and be able to use my hands individually and have rhythm in life. So that helped, and then... Did you feel lost going between those things? Oh my God, I was so lost for so, so long. I joined the Marine Corps, I was so lost. And two weeks before I shipped to boot camp, um, I was dating a Sicilian girl from Flushing, and um, her mother was an exceptional... Italian-American, American-Italian cook, you know, sausage and gravy, the, the, the sausage So you got your good uh, New like, York accent. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, she was really the one to push me to go to culinary school. And uh, the first time I met her, I'm going to swear, so I'm sorry. That's the first good. time I met her, I went to the house and uh, she was in the kitchen cutting onions. I remember distinctly because my eyes started to leak a little bit. And she walks up to me. She grabs me by the collar and she holds the knife to my throat. She says, you ever fuck with my daughter, I'll cut your fucking balls off. And I was like, okay. And then she slapped me on the face and said, go sit down. <laughs> and then proceeded to feed me an extraordinary American-Italian meal. And I was like, wow, this is, this is something that I never had. Because although my mom was raised by Italians very much driven by the palate of my other brothers. So there was always pesto genovese, but more often than not was hockey buck burnt hamburgers well done with, <laughs> you know, yellow mustard. So, and meatloaf and, you know, overcooked things everywhere, mac and cheese and stuff. So, uh, so two weeks before I'm going to boot camp. I've taken the oath. I, I'm so lost, and I, I don't really know what to do. I was like, you know what? I need some discipline. Maybe that'll fix it. I signed down for four years, took the oath, the whole thing. Uh, and two weeks before boot camp, she says, why are you doing this? Why don't you just go to culinary school? And it was like, it snapped in my head. I was like, that's it. I couldn't believe it. 
So I had gone to numerous schools before. I'd gone to massage school. I'd studied to be a firefighter. That's why I joined the, the Marine Corps. I'd gone to art school when I was a young child for painting, like drumming and all this other stuff. And I asked my parents, hey, can you, you know, can you put me through school? They're like, absolutely not. <laughs> so I was like, at least co-sign on the loan for me. So they co-signed on the loans. I took out a loan, a student loan. And at that time, culinary school was not the meat grinder that it is today, unfortunately. And I took out a $32,000 loan and 15 months at the Le Cordon Bleu. And this was Le Cordon Bleu before a massive corporation bought it. So it was actually sanctioned by Le Cordon Bleu Paris. So the quality of the education was far and beyond better than it is today. The proof is in the pudding. The, The guys and girls that are in the restaurant business now is a testament to the lack of education that they're getting. So I want to just go back to something. Sure. Because your father was a, a master, and here you were. Like, you kept stepping up to mastery and choosing not to continue. Mm. What was that like in that family? Like you know, my, you? My, my parents never um, forced me to do anything. Uh, that's good and bad. There was never any real discipline. Very, very liberally uh, governed family. So there was lots of trouble. There was lots of, you know, uh, late night hand wringing by my parents. Where are these children? And But I, I think a lot of how they raised me as a person allows me to lead and motivate people in a very distinct way today. I'm never the chef who's going to be chasing you down to tell you to label your things correctly or cut the tape square or clean up after yourself. I'm not that guy. Your reputation as a cook is yours to own. So if you choose to be sloppy and messy, people will see that. And that's yours to own. I'm not going to do anything about that. I would fire them. I have. When I got out of culinary school and got out of Spago and went to Italy and came back, I was very much a misguided leader, a misguided teacher. I was very aggressive. I was very violent. Things that I'm ashamed to say that I've done in the past because I just didn't know any better. I, I hadn't found my voice, how I truly wanted to guide people. And at the very essence of me, at the very core, uh, I am my father. My father's an exceptional teacher. He's taught photography at UCLA. He teaches me on a daily basis. So how did you find the right way? By making so many mistakes. What's the mistake you're, I mean, aside from probably yelling, is there something that stands out in your mind? Yes, so many. But uh, I think one of the biggest ones I experienced was uh, the closure of Bucato in 2015. Um, I unfortunately got involved with with someone who who did not have my best interest in mind. And... um, I was blinded by it because I was driven to succeed. And I didn't listen to the people that were were around me that loved me. And I just couldn't see the real truth. And it ended up costing me, you know, three and a half million dollars in bankruptcy. So exceptional lessons, lessons abound in that time of my life. And I essentially had to relearn the business. In what way? Well, everything that I had learned, I learned from a, from a con man about the business. So uh, on the business side, not on the cooking side. So I actually retreated to, for about nine months to Chicago. And uh, I chose a new mentor, Rich Melman. 
Rich, could not choose better. Oh, I love Rich. He's the architect of the universe. He is so beautiful and so giving and so selfless. And I needed a new mentor. I needed someone to guide me because I just, again, lost again. And so much of my career, including pasta making, including uh, seeking out these rare, obscure, and dying shapes, so much of what I've learned that is most valuable to me has been on the road uh, where I've been lost. And I come across this gem and it becomes so valuable to me because I've gone through the struggle. I've gone through the struggle to get there. And I think, unfortunately, to the detriment of the younger people that are trying to make pasta today, it's too easily given um, the information. There's information and then there's knowledge. And I can go online right now and connect on YouTube with a hundred different pasta makers and pick a shape and make the shape and say, hey, this is my shape and we're going to put it on the menu and make some money from it. Great. That has zero value to me. What has value is sitting with the woman who is teaching you this shape, not only about the shape and the technical passage of knowledge, but the anthropology. That's such a great segue, because when you decided to go to Italy, it wasn't as it is today. Like, you could do a lot of research online. No. It seems like you had dial-up had internet. <laughs> How did you find the school that became sort of the heart of your yeah. study? So this is 07, so like you said, dial-up internet. You have web pages, not websites. So a lot of what I did was by getting lost, making friends, and somehow getting myself invited to dinner. So I want to go back. So, because you found La Scuola yeah, so, Vecchia. So in 07, I, I stumbled across a website, um, a webpage, by a woman named Paola Ferrara. And Paola uh, is a, a pasta maker still. I'm still in connection with her. She's an extraordinary woman. Um, and on her site, at the bottom right of her site, was this little icon of La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese, their old seal. So I clicked on it. And it led me to their webpage, La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese, and this woman named Alessandra Spizni. Now, Alessandra is a powerhouse now. She's books and magazines. She's on TV. She's very, very well known, but at, at the time, the tail end of 07 going into 08, she had a small laboratorio with a small 10-table sala. And it was her cooking. She had uh, a Pakistani dishwasher, her daughter, Stefania, who's an extraordinary pasta maker as well, and a man by the name of Kozaku Kawamura. How is it possible that you ended up there at the same time? I know. I know. There's something in fate about you and the three of you in that place in that time. I know. My pasta is very much a confluence of those two masters, Alessandra and Kozaku. Absolutely. But it's, uh, it's this kind of... Uh, the duality of it is also related to the balance that's created in my pasta. Very strict very perfection-driven architectural understanding of shapes paired with this romance, beauty, and dogma, and tradition, and family story of Alessandra, and the two together. Is it in her hands? Is it in the soul? Is it because it's generations? Like, what? what is that? There's something that 
pasta makers in Italy gain through the experience of making pasta every day, all day. There is a, an effortless practice and a very meditational, pasta making takes on a meditational flow. And I'm at that point now, it's very much a meditation for me because I lose myself in the process. I don't think, I just react to the conversation that I'm having with the dough because it speaks to you. It totally speaks to you. You've created life through these ingredients. You folded this essence of life through air into this ball of dough. And then you're using this stick to spread those air pockets. And it's very much alive. The balance between extensibility and elasticity, delicate balance of those two elements is really what you're searching for. So making pasta is extremely organic and it's very much driven by what's inside of you. It's energetic. Do you feel that what you see that comes out from the inside of Alessandra is in a way different from what comes out of the inside of you? Well, yes and no. I think it's the same because the intention is the same. The love is the same. Uh, It's different because um, each piece of pasta made throughout the world is like a breath. You can never take the same breath again. It's a fingerprint. And it's yours. And mine is mine. And I can never take the same stroke twice. Ever. So each one is unique. So in that, it's different. But where it comes from and the history, I, I like to think that I'm a, a very, very small part of a lineage of pasta makers, thousands and thousands of years of people making pasta by hand. And what a lot of people don't realize or think about is that every single shape of pasta that you can find in the grocery store or whatever has an ancestor, an ancestral shape of where it was derived from. And all of those shapes are due to the ingenuity of women. By having to make the same shit every day and keep it fresh for their family. What would you do? Guess what, guys? We're going to eat semolina and water again today. (laughs) You would find new and beautiful ways to disguise the fact that this is the same thing. And that's where all of these shapes were born. The necessity to feed one's family and the necessity to not be bored. I was just wondering, because your family history is so deep in California, right? Mm. You're fifth generation. Mm. And I'm thinking about you and pasta, which is countless generations. Do you think that there's something in how landed you are as a person that attracts you to something that has that much history? Absolutely. I, I'm, I think energetically I'm a very old soul. There's no explanation for the amount of talent that I have other than I've been here and done this before. And I think that's why I was so frustrated as a child in school. I used to think to myself very, very early on, in like third grade, like, why am I sitting here again? Wow. Because I knew there was, I just knew there was something else here for me to do. And it wasn't this. And it wasn't being a Marine. It wasn't being a massage therapist. It wasn't being a musician. It wasn't being a painter. I've already done those because I was good at them immediately. I think pasta fell into me because I hadn't done it before. 
the um, the book is so beautifully shot. It really does make you feel that you can do step by step. Your your hands are very expressive, and you have the steps very clearly enumerated. In the book, you talk about when Alessandra came and allowed you, it just feels like it's the right word, yes, um, to cook the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the green lasagna. Yes. You had said in the book that she never allowed anyone no. to make this lasagna. This is true. And uh, no one. And then one day, she allowed, she allowed you me to. to do it. I think it was, it was, it was numerous things. Um, I think very much so uh, we both were enamored with each other immediately because we energetically connected and just by the way that she expressed herself I was able to decipher what needed to happen and I think she recognized that number one number two she knew that I was a chef and number three I was so respectful of her and her family and her process that I think she sensed that I was a good vehicle to pass this knowledge on to she knew that I was going to go pass it on to someone else to further the story of the history of this, her specific story, because her ragu and her bechamel are very specific to her. They're family-specific. That's part of the beauty of Italy is that it's so diverse because it was city-states all over the place and really didn't unify. It's, it's not even fully unified now. Uh, it's unified politically, but culinarily, those deeply rooted traditions are still very much alive and well. Let's talk about some of the trips that you took. Oh, my God. Because you spent a lot of time trying to convince grandmothers to <laughs> feed you yes. and teach you. Yes. And Alessandra was the one to open the door for me to start seeking out other pasta makers throughout the peninsula because I was I was on fire. She had lit a forest fire within me, and I, I needed more. I needed to understand more because this was just the very beginning. And this book is a reflection of that. I figured it was a good idea to start at the beginning instead of starting farther down the line. Because I didn't get to the south of Italy until very, very much later. So um, I returned from Bologna. I took over the helm at Rustic Canyon in 08. And um, I ran that restaurant for four years. But in that time, I went to Italy as often as I possibly could. I saved my money. I didn't go out to eat. I worked really hard, and then I went to Italy. So there was a shape that I stumbled across I think it was maybe 2010, called Strapatella in Umbria, and specific to a, an actual town, Bevania. There was no other mention anywhere except a small little passage in a book. So I went on a trip to Abruzzo, to Umbria, to uh, to Rome, or whatever, and I find this place, Bevania. It's a beautiful medieval walled city. And uh, I found this shape in a restaurant called Redibis, which in ancient Latin means you will return. Which I, I did right. many yes. times. <laughs> so what the shape is, is actually a byproduct of making bread. It's from a leavened dough. And basically, after you've made the day's dough, you tear off, strappare, you tear off pieces of the dough, you boil it. So it becomes this almost like bread souffle, like eating the best part of raw pizza, oh. and then tossed with a roasted tomato and marjoram sauce. And I ate this, and I was like, what is this? This is insane. So I saw the woman in the, the kitchen, and I asked the waiter, can I, can I go in? I said, ah, no, 
please, you don't understand. <laughs> can I, can I please? So I went in the kitchen and went through the process and she spoke to me in Italian. So I got maybe 15% of what she was saying. Um, and I wrote as much down as I possibly could and, uh, and went back to, uh, to LA and, and started messing around with uh, different styles of dough. And this is a pasta that I don't pull out very often. I pull it out for very special people. Um, and uh, so she had passed this information on to me. So I actually went back and shot a documentary with Taste Made uh, about the opening of Felix. And, and we went back to Bevania and the woman had died and hadn't passed it on to anyone in the town. So now I am this custodian of the shape so, I guess you just got chills thinking about it because I am the custodian of the shape that is, in, in my, my knowledge, is extinct. Because I've been back to Bivania three or four times since then, and I still cannot find anybody that makes the shape. So my responsibility is to continue to make the shape and honor its lineage, honor this woman, honor the history. And I've essentially set out to become just that, a custodian of these rare, obscure, and dying shapes. And if you don't have a daughter, if you don't have a granddaughter to pass this knowledge, let me be your mouthpiece. I will be your godson. And you're not a woman, as we determined at the beginning <laughs> of this podcast. And it seems that uh, in Italy... Because the girls, you know, were making the pasta from their childhood on. There aren't that many men making pasta. Does it strike you true. at all that as the guardian of the shapes, as a man, it's highly unusual? It's very unusual. Uh, when I first showed up, uh, they looked at me very strangely. I assure you of that. Um, but um, Italy is a, a very matriarchal society. I feel very much at home there. Um, I've never felt lost there, even though I was perfectly lost. So, Italy is a very feminine country. La Mamma is the best chef in the world, and nobody can tell anybody different. And I pay respect to that, absolutely. And out of the 155 or so shapes that I make by hand, only one of them I've learned from a man. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about femininity in cooking, and we're going to talk about your incredible restaurant. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. 
Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloids, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My extraordinary guest today is Evan Funky. I love saying funky, but it's not really quite. It's like funky. That's funky, funky, I mean. Funky. Anyway, um, I'm delighted to be back with you, Evan. Something that you said stuck with me, which is that pasta is a feminine art. Absolutely. What does that mean to you? I think historically, historically speaking, the technical and practical knowledge of making pasta by hand has been passed on uh, through women. It has been for thousands of years. And it's only until very recently become a global community where you can connect with somebody in Dubai right now if they're awake. So the world has gotten increasingly smaller in very recent history. But up until this time, the histories and the stories of these shapes uh, and these dishes have been passed down through practical knowledge through women. And women have been the creators and the homemakers. The Bolognese have a word called resdora. Resdora is the, the homemaker. She's the accountant. She's the food preparer. She's the svolina. She is everything. She is the heart and soul of the household. That's what Resdora is. And not only is she that, but she is the tuning fork for the very essence of the identity of Italian cuisine is the woman. And that's a very powerful thing. And I think a lot of people overlook the fact that the majority of Italian food that is good is made by women. And that's a true moniker of an excellent restaurant is I look back and I see the mother and the daughter and the granddaughter in the kitchen and say, okay, we're good. <laughs> Everything I, is okay. I like the way that you described the, um, the making of the Dough is breathing life. Absolutely. Which is also a maternal Absolutely. instinct in Absolutely. creating life through very simple ingredients. Very, very simple ingredients and very simple work. Uh, it's, it's like learning to dance. You know, you start with whatever a two-step. But if you don't have rhythm, you can't make pasta. And if you're not in tune to the rhythm of life, then your pasta will not have life. Um, you closed the your restaurant, um, I guess you said 2015. Bucato, Bucato yes. not, mm-hmm. <laughs> But you found an extraordinary partner for Felix. Yes, Janet tell, Zuccarini. Tell me how you found Janet Zuccarini and how that partnership has worked. So I was working for Rich Melman at the time, and I basically lived in a, uh, in a hotel for eight months. And I get this email out of the blue from Janet Zuccarini. And says, hey, Evan, I got your email from uh, a food writer in Los Angeles. I hope you don't mind, but I've got this restaurant on Abikini. Uh, I want to see if you want to be the chef. Like, wow, Abikini, that's the big leagues, you know. 
Um, so I sent her an email back and said, hey, sure, well, let's have a conversation. So she flew me to Toronto, and I, um, I cooked maybe three or four pasta dishes, nothing else, just pasta, at her restaurant, Gusto 101, uh, in Toronto. And um, she said a single word to me that stuck out. She described my food as casalinga, which is the housewife style. That was it. At that moment, I would never describe my food that way in public because I think it, it disrespects the women that actually own the Casalinga style. But that's totally what I'm shooting for is that I want to be this tuning fork for that specific style. You felt recognized and understood. Absolutely, without saying it. Right. So I was like, you got a deal. Let's do it. Because she understood where I wanted to go. She understood that I wanted to present this very natural and very unique and very specific style of pasta. Very specific style and approach to Italian cooking, which is basically buy the best ingredients you can and try not to fuck it up. <laughs> I ask each guest to give a shout out broadly to a woman who they admire, who they want everyone to know more about who would that be i think that i that i've been speaking about her this whole time i think alessandra spizny had such a, an enormous effect on i get choked up talking about it such an enormous effect on how i see myself as a person how i see myself as a, a pasta maker and also as a small part of this grand beautiful history of pasta making so she's uh, exceptional but I can't I would be remiss if I didn't speak about my wife because this business that I'm in is so incredibly difficult for relationships and she's also an extraordinarily intelligent beautiful woman she she works for Cedar Sinai in breast cancer research you know I make spaghetti and she's curing cancer and, and she's so extraordinary you know and my mom and my sister, like, I, I can't just pinpoint Alessandra, but I will because it's what we're talking about. I will because she's had this incredible impact on who I am as a person and as a chef. So I, I choose Alessandra, but there are far too many women that have, that have made impact on my life and make me who I am today. And that, folks, is where we're going to end today's podcast. Thank you, Evan, for joining me on Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda, Engineer of the Day. Thank you, Nina. Without you, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd be nothing. Uh, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Speaking Broadly, rate, review. And if you have questions, suggestions, thoughts, comments, please send them my way. You can DM me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. And until next week, have a great week. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my all-in-the-industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality, Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Porrent, Rita Jamey, 
Crystal Mobiani, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.